of a rescue mission. Jesus once said that he came to seek and to save. And this reading from Isaiah is all about that rescue mission. Sometimes it's hard to get our heads around passages like these. We might sense something of the beauty of the poetry, but we might feel overwhelmed by the length of them. If you're not yet a Christian, you might look at that and think, what on earth does this have to say to my life? And if you are a Christian, you might ask exactly the same question. And so this morning, we're going to zoom out before we zoom in. I'm going to reread some parts of the passage, but just pass over others. And so it's helpful to keep your Bible open in front of you. And that will help us as I think we look to see the bigger things before we spot the smaller details. We are going to discover that this news of a rescue mission is all about redemption. I wonder if that word jumped out at you as the passage was read. If you have a look again, verse 14, chapter 43. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer. Or chapter 44, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer. And then there twice at the end of the reading, verse 22, I have redeemed you. Verse 23, the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Israel is writing to God's people before their captivity in Babylon. And despite the certainty of that exile, God is going to bring them home. He is going to redeem them. The reading begins with the promise of political redemption, rescue from Babylon. But it quickly moves into the theme of spiritual redemption. And in that way, it is a wonderful picture of the redemption that every Christian has in Christ. We're going to learn one big lesson about redemption from each half of the reading, the half that Claire read and then the half that Martha read. And we're going to split each of those two halves in half again. And then in each of those four quarters, I'm going to explore with you a triplet of words. And hopefully those words will help us see the big picture as well as the smaller details. So here's, here's our first lesson. The Lord redeems his people from the guilt of sin for the blessing of spiritual life. The Lord redeems his people from the guilt of sin for the blessing of spiritual life. And our first quarter is verses 14 to 21, and our triplet of words is the promise, the pattern, and the purpose of... First of all, the promise, verses 14 and 15. God says that one day he is going to cause Babylon to flee in their getaway boats. For the sake of his people's freedom, the Lord is going to defeat their conquerors. But redemption is not a new idea for God. He's done it before. That's the promise. And here's the pattern of redemption, verses 16 to 20. How he rescued Israel long ago from slavery in Egypt. How he set them free from a captor who was far too strong with them, strong for them, and preserved them through the waters of judgment. But now, verse 18, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? So the pattern of the past is going to be eclipsed by the pattern of the future. Because God's new redemption is even grander in scope than that rescue from Egypt. You see there, it is going to usher in a new creation as these creatures find water 
in the wilderness. But why did God redeem his people? What is the purpose of it? You see there verse 21, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. So God rescued Israel so that they could declare how wonderful, how good, how awesome he is to the world. The purpose of redemption is the glory of God. But no sooner has Isaiah stated this purpose than he abruptly changes gear and he moves from that theme of political, historic redemption to spiritual redemption. And so we arrive at our second little word triplet from verse 22 through to verse 5 of chapter 44. The God who is burdened, the God who blots out, and the God who blesses. Verse 22. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. Israel. Do you remember how God chose Israel to speak about him? But now we read that they cannot even be bothered to speak to him. Their religion has become mechanical. They go through the motions, but they have no real heart engagement with God. Verse 23, you have not brought me sheep, nor honored me with your sacrifices. So they did do these sacrifices, but there was no real engagement with God as they did them. The Old Testament sacrifices were meant to be we're meant to sustain a life of joyful relationship between the people and their God. But they've become nothing more than empty rituals. Israel's religion is disinterested and apathetic. They are fed up with God, and so God is fed up with them. Verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. God is burdened weighed down, exhausted by his people's sin. And yet in his amazing grace, he chooses to forgive. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Transgressions were recorded on the charge sheets, but God blots out the evidence Sin is an indelible stain, but God refuses to even look at it. If Israel were to stand up and plead their innocence in court, verse 26, they'd be thrown out, condemned in a minute. Sin is ingrained in their history and in their DNA, verse 27. They're sinners deserving destruction, verse 28. But what does God do? He blots out transgressions. And remembers sins no more. Why does he do such an extraordinary thing? Why does he show such amazing grace? Verses 1 to 5, so that he can bless his people. You see, Israel's status hasn't changed. They are still his chosen ones, his servants. Verse 1, they don't need to fear. God formed them in the womb. He's known them since the beginning. They belong to him. And so he will not abandon them. But he will bless them with spiritual life, verses 3 to 5. He will transform the spiritual deserts of their lives. He will pour out his life-giving spirit. And so now, instead of being silenced by their guilt, remember the end of chapter 43, they had nothing to say. Now they can speak up about the blessing of belonging to him. Verse 5. Some will say, 
I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. This one, that one, the other one, standing up, proudly testifying to their own personal relationship with God. The Lord redeems his people from the guilt of sin for the blessing of spiritual life. I wonder if this is a truth that we are treasuring in our hearts and minds today. Israel was told not to dwell on the pattern of the past, but to look at the new thing that God is doing. And we can do that when we look at Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Christ was burdened by our sin. Sorry, God was burdened by our sin, but he blotted it out when Christ died in our place. When Christ was burdened, he carried the burden instead, redeeming us from the guilt of sin, becoming guilty for us, so that we might receive the blessing of, of new spiritual life poured out into our lives, sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, whenever anyone puts their trust in, in Jesus as their redeemer, as their rescuer, God pours his Holy Spirit into their life. Israel could say, I belong to the Lord. What a wonderful thing to say. Do you know, we have something even more extraordinary to say than that. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can say, our Father in heaven. Redeemed from the guilt of sin for the blessing of spiritual life. Are we enjoying that blessing today? Or perhaps do we feel like Israel sometimes felt dry, thirsty ground? Are we trusting God's promise to redeem us in Christ? If so, we already have his spirit. But will we ask his spirit to occupy more and more of our lives afresh in each every day? But the rest of our passage helps us see why we really need to do that and just how we can do it as well. So second, the Lord redeems from the ignorance of idolatry for the purpose of his praise. The Lord redeems from the ignorance of idolatry for the purpose of his praise. And our next little word trip that covers verses 6 to 20, it is the men, the materials, and the madness of idolatry. But just before we get there, God introduces the issue, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. In other words, Israel's God is in executive control of time and space. He is Lord of history, and so his people have no need to fear. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. You see, on paper at least, Israel believes these things. But the nations around her certainly don't. And so we meet the men of idolatry. Verse 9, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. 
Perhaps we should picture these idol makers taking their little idols along to some ancient version of antiques roadshow. Uh, they're showing them off. They're so proud of their treasures. Literally, they're darlings. But the valuer has some cutting news for them. As everyone gathers around to find out how much they're worth, they're worth absolutely nothing. And the idolaters stand ashamed and disgraced. And then as if to rub salt into their wounds, Isaiah pens one of the most damning satires of idolatry in the whole Bible as he introduces us to the blacksmith and the carpenter. The blacksmith, he labors at his forge all day long, but afterwards he's exhausted. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. Surely a human being that weak cannot create a god. The anticipation builds as the carpenter uses all of the different tools in his toolbox. And we're sitting there and he's saying to us, can you guess what it is yet? Can we guess what it is yet? Verse 13. He shapes it in human form. Human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible. God creates human beings in his own image. But now human beings create God in their own image. It's a tragic reversal. They even make little shrines or literally houses for their gods to live in. The men of idolatry are tragic. Even more so when we consider the materials they used to make their gods. Verses 17. See, the man might have planted the trees in the forest. He might have watched them grow. But he didn't make the trees grow. The rain did that. And behind the rain, we're meant to see the sustaining goodness of the creator. But what does the craftsman do with his God-given materials? Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it, he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. You see, his God is little more than a leftover, an afterthought. Half he burns in the fire from the rest. It's not even the second half. From the rest, whatever's left over, he makes into a God. It is almost as if we are meant to laugh at the madness of idolatry. Only it is not a laughing matter at all. No, they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? You see, these men hold their idols in their hands, but they do not realize that their idols grip their hearts. They are like addicts hooked on a powerful drug and they cannot see that their choices are destroying them. They are blind to spiritual reality and they cannot tell what is true and what is false. They ask their idol to save them, but it has no more power than a block of wood. A friend of the Beatles guitarist, George Harrison, once lay in hospital, ill. And Harrison visited bearing him a gift. It wasn't a magazine or chocolates or flowers. It was a small little Hindu statue. Harrison said, 
he'll look after you and put him on the hotel windowsill. Well, perhaps we wouldn't do that. We're not as primitive as the blacksmith or the carpenter, nor as mystical as George Harrison. But by nature, we are idol makers just the same. Two old writers have put it like this. The human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. Or another writer, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself really is your God. See, our idols are those things that we value most highly and think the most of. We aim for them. We desire them. We're fearful of not having them. We delight in them when we do have them. We love them. We give our thanks to them. Reputation, success, control, comfort, pleasure, security, all sorts of other things, created things that we fashion with our own hands. We use our own skill and our own strength to make gods from the materials of life. And we may even unwittingly encourage others to worship the same things. And all the time we forget that we wouldn't even have them unless the Creator had given them to us to enjoy. No wonder I think Paul picked up on Isaiah's thoughts as he exposed the idolatry that has gripped the human race from the beginning of time. Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, God redeemed us to rescue us from the ignorance of idolatry, the natural inescapable foolishness of our hearts, the enslaving worship of created things instead of the creator, the shame and disgrace we deserve for such spiritual madness. He redeemed us so that we could worship our creator in freedom instead, which is what the last few words of our reading are all about, and our final word triplet, remember, return, rejoice. Remember these things, Jacob, verse 21, for you, Israel, are my servants. I have made you, Israel, I will not forget you. God's people must meditate upon their extraordinary blessings. The, idol, the idolater's idol can't save him. He can't save himself from his idol addiction. But Israel belongs to the Lord forever. Remember, he'll never forget you. But also return. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Perhaps as Israel faced the prospect of exile, they feared that God had given up on them for good. And we might feel similarly about our own lives. We might look at specific sins that we're ashamed of or patterns of sin that we can't seem to break. We might be aware of cold hearts that don't even desire God above the more day-to-day -day idols. And we might ask ourselves, does God really love me? Does God really want me back? Would he accept me if I tried to turn my life around? And to questions like those, God says, return. His welcome is guaranteed. 
And yet we don't need to reach a certain standard before he'll have us back. He has already redeemed us in Christ. We just need to return, to repent, as Jesus said. And if we do that, then his spirit will begin to occupy more and more of our lives afresh each day. We will enjoy that spiritual blessing, uh, that blessing of new spiritual life that he longs to give to us. A life of rejoicing in restored relationship with him. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. The purpose of redemption is not just that we would be saved from sin and judgment. It is that all creation could join in this praise of the God who redeems everything. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I wonder if you are a Christian person today, will you remember this wonderful truth that God has redeemed you so that you might play your part in that great cosmic plan? Will we return to him from the idols of our hearts and will we live lives that are given over to his praise? And if you're not yet sure of the Christian faith, could I ask you this morning to consider the madness and the enslaving ignorance of idolatry? Because those things that we hold most dear cannot save us. The Lord, though, longs to sweep away our sins like the morning mist. And he desires above all things that we would share an eternity of rejoicing with him. Well, we've zoomed out and we've zoomed in. And we've asked, what does God save his people from? What does he save them for? And we've seen the answer is contained in that truth of redemption. The God of the Bible is the God who redeems He rescues people from powers too strong for them, the guilt of sin, the ignorance of idolatry. He rescues for a reason, the blessing of new spiritual life, the purpose of his praise. Isaiah reassured and reminded his people, and yet they still couldn't see the full picture. They had to take these things on faith. We can see a much fuller picture because we look at Christ, and yet we still need to have faith until the day when our redemption is complete and we see him face to face. So shall we finish by asking God to give us that faith as we wait for him to return, our great God and redeemer. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in a prayer. I have swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of redemption that we have in Christ. Thank you that all our sin is removed far away from us, swept away like the morning mist. Lord, please help us to delight in everything that you have done for us.